Los Angeles, Ben Acker and I are celebrating the release of our new Star Wars young adult novel, Star Wars Join the Resistance, thematically timely, uh, with a big variety show, charity, benefit, fun around, book signing, book release party on March 8th at Largo at the Coronet. It's going to be Star Wars themed, it's going to be Resistance themed, which makes a lot of sense. Uh, and we've got uh, a great lineup shaping up already, and we'll be announcing lots of guests uh, throughout the month. We hope you can join us. The show will benefit Public Council, which is the nation's largest not-for-profit law firm specializing in delivering pro bono legal services. They're right here in Los Angeles, and they strive to achieve three goals, protecting the legal rights of disadvantaged children, representing immigrants who have been the victims of torture, persecution, domestic violence, trafficking, and other crimes, and fostering economic justice by providing individuals and institutions in underserved communities with access to quality legal representation. We really believe in this organization, and um, we know a lot of bigger organizations are getting uh, a lot of donations right now, and we thought it would be good to highlight Public Council, which is, while a very big organization, is really focused on Los Angeles um, primarily. So if you are in L.A., please join us for this event. We've got uh, our pal Matt Gorley of the I Was There Too podcast, uh, Doug Benson of I Love Movies. Uh, we've got Ahmed Best, who played Jar Jar Binks. So come see him anyway. He's a great guy and a very funny guy. We're going to do some fun stuff with him. Uh, the show, again, March 8th at Largo. Go to largo la com for tickets. Follow at B-N-A-C-K-E-R, at Ben Acker on Twitter. Follow me, at Ben Blacker on Twitter for updates about the lineup and uh, more fun stuff. And you'll be able to get books at that show, too. If you're not coming to the show, get the book on Amazon. You can pre-order it now. Now entering Nerdist.com. Welcome to the Writers Panel. I'm Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the podcast. I created the show because I wanted to talk to other writers about the business and process of writing. I've had more than 500 writers on the show, so please check the archives to find more writers and more TV shows of interest to you. I'm a writer myself, having written for Supernatural, Puss in Boots, and other programs. I have a couple of cool projects out this first quarter of 2017 that I hope you'll check out. One is a Supernatural Western comic book series from Boom Publishing that I wrote with my writing partner, Ben Acker, and our friend, the TV showrunner, Andrew Miller. It's beautifully illustrated by Hannah Christensen, and the first issue is available in comic stores and online February 8th. In March comes the first book in a series of young adult novels that Acker and I wrote called Star Wars Join the Resistance. It takes place just before The Force Awakens and is about a bunch of kids who join the fight against the First Order. But mostly they have adventures, fall in love with each other, and get in trouble. I hope you'll check out both of those projects. We're very proud of how they came out. Let me know who you'd like to hear on this podcast by following me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, like the color, only more so, liking the Writers Panel on Facebook, and visiting writerspanel.tumblr.com. And if you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes. Reading those reviews really provides a pick-me-up. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writers Panel with Ben. And it's starting now! Oh, yeah! Will you guys please introduce yourselves so that the listener knows what your voices sound like? Sure. This is David Levine. Hey, I'm Brian Koppelman. Uh, David and Brian are the creators of Billions, which 
premieres when? The 13th? February 19th. 19th. Okay. So this will be out maybe a week or two before people should check it out on Showtime? Yeah, Showtime. <laughs> Absolutely. Good. Land on I it. really, yeah. really did my homework. <laughs> um, thank you guys for being here. I know this is a, a quick stop for you in L.A. Um, let's talk about the show uh, before we kind of get into other things, because you guys have written a lot of movies, a lot of movies that have been made, too, which is unusual, I know. Um, <laughs> but let's talk about Billions. Why this show? I mean, you guys are you're, you're doing great. You're writing these movies that people are actually paying for and seeing. Um, why go into TV and why tell this story? So, I mean, even the underlying premise of the question, <laughs> I'm so happy to be here. I, I just want to say, you know, I'm a, I love the, the show and, you know, I've been on a panel, one yeah. of these before, but even the underlying premise, I think is like a question from 10 years ago. Like, why would you, I do, I think so. The idea that you would go into television because you, you, your premise was, you guys, things are going so well in movies. Why would right. you do this? Well, I like Mad Men better than almost mm-hmm. any movie of the last five years. Right. There are a handful of movies that moved me in the way Mad Men moved me. Or for you, the uh, show like Mad Men and The Wire and mm-hmm. uh, you know Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad, The Sopranos. Sure. Yeah, Sopranos for me, too. I know when you do what we do, getting to make a TV show about something that you want to to spend your time on. And working with a place like Showtime where it's just us and the mm-hmm. three top execs is sort of the most undistilled and unfettered situation that you could find yourself in as a creator or something. It's it's really it's great. I mean it's intense. It's a lot of work. Yeah. But well, and that's, it's a great time. And I think that's really what I'm what I was asking, because I do agree. I mean, like we all know how great TV is now and, and we have a real TV bias on this show. But um, you know, it's a, it is a different animal. And I would imagine it was learning a new set of skills, though you guys have been very hands-on with your movies, not just writing, but directing, producing, everything. Say, you know, for us, we, we were chasing a story in the hedge fund space and in the U.S. attorney space for a long time. Hmm. And our, our sort of uh, compass point for, for considering TV was always, do we have a story that we think needs to be unpacked over over like 12 or 24 or 48 or you know mm-hmm. 70 however many hours as opposed to 90 minutes or 120 minutes. Well let me let me stop you there. I want to I'm curious to hear why were you chasing a hedge fund story? What's interesting to you guys about that? Yeah, I mean, well we we started realizing I mean so long ago like 10 years ago for the first time when we were offered a book that was in a different that was a an old book in in the world of, of boiler rooms and stock markets, and I remember Dave turning to me and saying, "You know, this just isn't the story. the The story is the next thing. It's hedge funds." And uh, I immediately said, "Like, yeah, it is. That is the story." And we started trying to figure out what that would look like, and then we began researching that world. And when we did, we found people who thought of themselves, although they might not articulate it in this way, as nation states. They are above the law. They made their own, in a way, they they live by rules of their own creation. And they're able to do that because of the amount of influence that they have. Mm -hmm. And so you have people with fleets of ships and airplanes and armed uh, men around them. And uh, more than that, personal interactions at the highest levels of government in the world. So we started thinking about that, these brilliant hmm. people and what it means to create a world and be able to live in it sort of in, in you know, uh, 
in your own your own conception of the universe. Mm-hmm. And so we just started hanging around them, and they were incredibly fascinating to us. Yeah, you know, we live back east. Brian lives in Manhattan. I live in Greenwich, Connecticut, which is sort of a hub of these things. So I know a lot of these guys socially, and we started to become aware of these these like forty year old self made billionaires who who just figured out how to be more efficient than the rest of the stock market. It was fascinating to us. And it's been fascinating to us from the beginning of our it, the, These characters, we, I remember at the premiere of Billions, uh, the critic Glenn Kenny, who's also a friend, came up to us and said, like, you guys have been trying to make this for 20 years. Like, if you think about yeah, what the characters and round... Well, I, I mean, you'd have to ask Glenn, but if you think about the characters and rounders, w- they are also trying to live by hmm. their own rules, by their wits. Mm-hmm. And grappling with what that means and uh, how does that affect friendships? What does that mean about your sense of morality? What does it mean if you have no God? I don't mean like God, but if the normal ways one has to live don't apply to you, well, then what? where's your North Star? How do you find your North Star? So that shit was like hmm. fucking fascinating to us because it's a modern kind of superhero. For guys who don't do superhero right. stuff, it's a modern kind of... Bobby Axelrod is a character out of... Uh, who has superpowers. And so on the U.S. US Attorney... Yeah, on the flip side, the U.S. Attorney is a guy who has huge governmental resources at his disposal and, and like, very little oversight. These guys choose the cases they go after. And we started to become aware of these guys while doing the public good, also doing credible good for themselves, like, as far as their next step into elected office Mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, And we realized that it was... You know, if when these guys come together, it's like Shakespearean kings or something preparing their their kingdoms for battle. And that just inspired us as like a long form kind of a story we Mm -hmm. could tell instead of, you know, a two hour movie. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, right off the bat, these are incredibly complicated characters, deeply flawed characters, and you do want to go deeper. But I wonder how you guys start to sort of round that up and pitch this show? Like, how do you, we how do you sell this show? <laughs> so that's the answer to the yeah. thing we were talking about okay. briefly before. It, it, it's a tough pitch, probably. I would imagine. <laughs> I think that we could have sold it as a pitch, mm-hmm. but then they have something in mind, and then it may not right. be what you write up, and then it might be one of those walkaway situations, and we were unwilling to be in that situation. So what did you do? We were at the lowest point, I would say, emotionally. Uh, because TV, we had tried to do TV a couple times. We had done it. First of all, we ran a show. Mm-hmm. We, we created a show that we didn't really run called No, There Was No Showrunner called Tilt, and about 10 years ago also. And then we'd made a series of deals uh, with HBO, and none of those shows went. Mm-hmm. And they were pitched. They were pitches, adaptations of books. Um, original ideas, an idea producer came to us. Like, there were all a variety of things. Sure. And then we were meant to be the showrunners of vinyl. And th- we didn't even get started at, when we were fired uh, because Terry <laughs> political morass, really wanted yeah. to run the show. Oh, interesting. And so we were at an incredible... And Runner Runner had just come out and had bombed. And so we were at a moment where we felt... Uh, almost like creative. I remember feeling like, well, I don't know, uh, to go back to your beginning question, it wasn't TV, it wasn't like TV was some avenue that was open to us. Mar- <laughs> we just been fired by HBO on a show, although as soon as we were, they then, because they were, they then offered us a new show, a <laughs> blind deal to go make a new show. 
But we decided we had to change the way, and this is the answer to the question mm-hmm. about how you get stuff made now. I mean, we just decided we had to write it on spec, and we mm-hmm. were going to take the time, and we were going to turn down other jobs, and we were just going to we, write this. At that point, I mean, we should say we we um, got introduced by our agent to Andrew Ross Sorkin, the financial mm-hmm. journalist, who was working on a like a parallel track kind of idea, and the agent knew both of our ideas, and he put us together. And we started talking about it, and you know, so he was somebody coming to TV new, and he said, well, should we go pitch it? And we were like, well, we know we'll sell this. We walked into the room, especially with him, and, and we we said no because we should try to get this made, not just try to get a deal. Which had so, been our idea in, in film. You know, you and, you and Eric Heiser, who, I mean, Arrival, I think Eric's script is a miracle. Uh, I, I loved hearing the podcast, and I loved tracking his story. We know one another. I really like him, and uh, I think he's a brilliant screenwriter. But you guys were talking about this, uh, this idea of feature film writers – uh, having a hard time getting movies made or what you said something like it's the story generally assumed that when you write something uh it doesn't get made mm-hmm. that's the life of a feature film writer that has not been our experience our experience has been when you try to take shortcuts the stuff doesn't necessarily work hmm. when you pitch when you take assignments i agree but if you're somebody who got into this by writing a spec if you had a vision and then you were able to achieve it like our first movie was a spec script that mm-hmm. became a film we were on set every day for and that's how we learned how to do all this we still have this fundamental belief that if we love something enough to commit the, the serious time and effort to writing it on spec, meaning having to make, make less money, having to turn down opportunities, having to just sit in our room and create the thing, I, I, just being for, I still have the faith that that plus an unrelenting uh, assault uh, with everything you have will get the thing made. Mm-hmm. And it just, you might have to get the, it made differently. Like we produced this movie called I Smile Back that my wife Amy wrote with her writing partner Paige Dillon based on Amy's novel. Almost impossible, people would say, but they wrote it on... Amy wrote the novel. The novel was published. She and her partner wrote the screenplay. And in the old days, that movie would have been made for $10 million. Amy found... Got Sarah Silverman. Sarah agreed to do it. We got the movie made for $350,000, mm-hmm. but it still played all over the world. Mm-hmm. Went to Sundance. It went to Sundance. It went to Doville. Sarah got nominated for a SAG Sarah Award. A, yeah, SAG Award yeah. nomination. That's a movie that, I mean, every agency, I remember bringing that script to an agency, and they said, um, oh, well, we don't. We can raise $10 million or $5 million, $350,000 is impossible. And, and we said, no, no, it's, I'm gonna, we're going to show you. It's, it's more than possible. So over and over, people tell you how hard it is, and it is hard. But the truth is, you just have to well, we think. Did, and we did make zero dollars on it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> oh, I mean, getting movies you know, made and making just, money on them are totally different. It was like joining story. the Peace Corps, you know. It, yeah. So yeah. Well, and and Eric's story is sort of you know the proof of that. It's this is the script that he had to write yes. and wrote it on spec. I mean, as you guys have done, but it took ten years. And Spates had the same story. Yeah, right. Spates on passengers. Yeah. But but that's why I think. Uh, the only power a writer has, the most power a writer ever has, is when he or she has, or they have a piece of material that somebody wants. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's your moment of leverage. You have no other moment of leverage if you're a writer in Hollywood. Yeah. And so we felt like if we wrote Billions and uh, it, 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 it came close to this notion in our head of what it should sound like and feel like and be. And, and we worked so fucking hard on it. Pilots are supposed to take a short time to write. It took months and months and months. I actually, I want to hear more about this uh, and for purely selfish reasons because it's something I'm sort of faced with right now, which is there's a story we are dying to tell. 
We know it's a series. We we're, we need to figure out the pilot. What did you guys do? Like how how when your agent put you together with Sorkin, how fully formed was your idea? It was. No, I mean it wasn't fully formed, and we, we started to... having a series of conversations, like just long conversations that we found interesting, and then we started to jot down some notes when we would have those meetings, and then eventually some threads started to stick, and then at some point we did cards. But we didn't write for a very long time. No, we didn't rush to the writing process because mm-hmm. we knew all the preparation. The more time we spent on preparation, in a way, it would speed Not up the actual writing. Not in a handicapping or crippling way, <laughs> but in um, we're right because there's a way you could research for three years and never yeah. do anything. And I want to say we tried. We wrote a version. We wrote a hedge fund show a, a half hour hmm. eight years ago. For somebody. Mm-hmm. And then the crash happened, and so the show didn't happen. Uh, it was a, more of a comedy. It wasn't this show. But we did try this and then kind of put it aside. So when, when we sat with Andrew and roughed out a framework, which was these, these two guys, then you know the character of Wendy really opened things up if I go back to how it happened. Mm-hmm. And then even, even landing on these two guys must have taken... Converse, weeks of conversation between you guys. Yeah, that was the well, original. Brian and I, yeah, had a real vision for for Axe because mm-hmm. we just had sort of like bumped up against enough of these archetypes mm-hmm. in a way. Sure. And we knew the way what drove them in some weird, inchoate way. And then weirdly, we had become fascinated. Like the year before Andrew came in, we had been become aware of the fact that U.S. attorneys have this kind of power, because we were thinking about Christie and Giuliani and Spitzer and slightly different prosecutorial jobs and, and the way in which Cuomo and the way in which people use prosecutorial positions for their own personal advancement while serving the public good and how you could look and they actually did do the thing. They did serve the public good, but they served themselves <laughs> even more. Yeah. And we started thinking of them as kings. And so then Andrew had also been thinking about those things. We had these... We right at the beginning, the first meeting the three of us had, the framework of those two characters being set against each other was the topic of conversation. Then figuring out how to make that really be like really who they were, mm-hmm. why they were who they were, and who the other people were, what the points of tension could be. Mm-hmm. That took a lot of sure and work. figuring and the out meetings the structure. Took a lot of people, yeah, you know, figuring out the structure of it too, because it's weird. It's weirdly structured. It's two worlds. Mm-hmm. It's two leads and all of their attendant people, and and you know, this Wendy character sort of straddles the worlds. And we knew we wanted to make real marriages where the wives were important, and and not just appendages. And mm-hmm. you know, it it it's a it's a weird sort of mapping process where when you allocate the time, the dramatic space to the two worlds and all the, the subplots in each yeah. and then try to weave them together. And I would imagine... So that was the challenge. Once you do land on these sort of two kings, everything must sort of start to fit into play. You know you're dealing with a sort of Shakespearean style drama, these machinations going on, these two guys pitted against each other. So you at least have that focus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you do. I would say, and think about it, I think the thing Glenn was talking about, really... And the thing that I think is what makes this like our show is like the tone. It's hmm. tone. It's like the the really locking in, which which started to happen as we talked about who these people were, uh, and 
when we realized what Wendy was, and then when we realized Wendy is actually that the dominatrix. If you haven't seen the pilot, I'm going to spoil it. But just a year and a half <laughs> yeah. later, I think you're fucking, okay. You should have watched the pilot by now. <laughs> uh, you know, the show starts with the Chuck, Chuck Rhodes, Paul Giamatti's character. Uh, being burned and pissed on by a dominatrix in the whole first episode, you think that he's cheating on, cheating his, on his wife, who's Maggie Siff, Wendy Rhodes. Then at the end, you find out it is Wendy Rhodes, Maggie Siff. And when we figured that out, um, and uh, the writing of that was really funny, uh, when we figured that out, we knew, okay, this whole thing has to be is going to be canted slightly. Hmm. And we it, it tied in, for, for us, you know, almost everything is a comedy to us. And the show isn't a comedy, but we're aware that people like this express themselves with humor a lot. It's they love what they do. That was another bit. The big tonal realization for us was like in each of these exchanges, everybody fucking loves the thing that they do. (laughs) They get off on it, which means they're going to express themselves in cutting humorous ways. There's bounce to it. It's not drudgery. They're not gloomy about their their futures. Mm -hmm. They dig it. Even when they're embattled. Yeah, it's something I really like about the show. You know, there's a version of this show that is so dry or that is so grim. But your characters are never that. And I think that is true across the board of of the characters you guys write. Uh, Is this tone, is this a shared sensibility? Is this just the voice that comes out of the combination of the two of you? I guess so. <laughs> no, yeah. it's what we're like. I mean, it is. You know, we've been like brothers since we're fourteen and fifteen. Mm. So, I mean, I, I and mean, we talk about this sometimes. I mean, essentially, we're just a less uh, amazing version of John Ringer and Russell Ziski. <laughs> That's pretty much the way that we. I thought you were going to say the Cone Brothers. <laughs> no, that would have been much more flat. When you said less amazing, I was like, oh, he's going to definitely say the Cone Brothers. I mean, do you think we're as but amazing? But then you went as... all the way. I mean, we're, yeah. Do you That's... think we're as amazing as Ringer? No, you said much less amazing. So, yeah. We're less amazing than these very smart, glib garbage people. Yeah. Yeah, even them. I'm saying even them. I'm, yeah. I mean, I, I think I'm on a level of Dewey Oxberg. Like, I think I would say I'm as amazing as the Ox, okay. for sure, but, but not as amazing as Ziski, Russell Ziski. I think that, you know, that's, I mean, I remember watching those Bill Murray movies. The two of us watched them over and over and over together when we were kids. And that just gets inside of you in a way that you can't shake it. And yes, the Coen Brothers are our biggest creative influence. In well, let's, let's, more let's talk about way. this. I'm sure you guys have talked it to death, but let's talk about your partnership. It's rare that I get to talk to writing partners, and to me, it is endlessly fascinating because every partnership is different. Um, how did it? How did it be? How did you go from being friends to creative partners? Well, we've been friends since we were. I was 14. He was 16. I think That's when we so met, funny. and really early on, when we were still kids, we tried to write something, mm-hmm. and it didn't go anywhere. It was, I mean, it was a comedy, but it had no grounding. It was just not funny, <laughs> probably. As you it do when just, you're a teen. Yeah. So it was just like a project. We were mm-hmm. like, "Oh, it'd be cool. We should write something," and, and it didn't happen. And then we each went to like live our lives, even though we stayed close. And Brian had like a great career in the music business going. Um, you could talk about that if you want. I mean, it's been documented. Heard all <laughs> it's been it, documented. So, <laughs> so he go had the archive. Go, look go it to up. the moment archive. You know, people talk about what sidetracks them from becoming a writer, mm-hmm. or filmmaker, and you know, usually it's like really hard 
terrible struggle and stuff. He actually had like a what's considered a great job, but it was still his form of sure. struggle. I I came out to L.A. right after college and and started working in the business, mm-hmm. like on the assistant level right. at agencies and reading tons of scripts did for you know producers. You and to write at the time, I did, and I you know the working the business. I didn't understand how the movie business worked, so I thought, okay, I'll get this education. But I ended up really reading a ton you know, thousands of scripts. And I really still remember the five great ones that all have become these, these iconic movies I'm now. Kidding. But what, then what were a couple of them? Thelma and Louise. Mm-hmm. Um, what was, uh, you well, were natural born killers. Remember it was the Quentin, original. Quentin, yeah. Natural born oh, killers. Not my favorite Quentin movie, but it was Quentin and mm-hmm. the voice was so clear. And, also the movie never remember that original script. You sent it to me. Cause yeah. Dave sent me that script to say like, oh, read this. The original script is I'm sure you've, I mean, you probably have it. The original script's incredible. It's nothing like the yeah, movie that got it's made. It's around. People yeah. can find it. The original Quentin Tarantino uh, script was about the love between these two people mm-hmm. and the murder as sacrament. Mm-hmm. And that is completely gone. In Oliver Stone's movie, there's this idea that they're unfaithful to one another. And in Quentin's script, they would never have been unfaithful hmm. to one another. And, but I remember you sending it to me and, and me just going, what the how the fuck is this possible? It's yeah. the greatest thing I've ever... <laughs> we hadn't read anything by Quentin. Then you went back and got the other Well, scripts. I went to my bosses and I said, we should you know, you guys should have a meeting with this guy. And, and I showed him the script and they were like horrified basically by it. <laughs> and in the interim, I had called CAA. I think he'd just been started to get represented there or something. And his agent picked up the phone. It was early in the morning. And I said, can I make a meeting for this guy with my bosses? And he was like, yeah, sure. Just let me know when. And while these guys were sort of squirming over being uncomfortable about the violence and stuff, I think like res dogs or something came out and then they were like, yeah, that guy, Quentin, can we get that meeting up? And I'm like, now you can. I mean, you can meet him in two years, maybe. And that was over. So, you know, it was experiences like that. And oh, Rosenberg's for you love things to do in Denver. Mm -hmm. You sent that that to me also. Yeah, I was like, this is incredible. And um, and uh, usual suspects was one. Mm It's interesting. I mean, these are scripts. These are great lessons for people. These are scripts with strong voices. But he sent them to me before they were made. Sure. Yeah. yeah. He recognized out of the thousands of scripts, those were like things that he wanted. And you weren't emailing them to me. You were sending them. Yeah, to make sending, copies and make copies and sending them. This was in the old mail. days. Yeah. But uh, then, then I realized that I couldn't actually do the day job, which was so time consuming. And. Mm-hmm become a writer so i just like quit Wait, i want to plug something because the listeners of this show might actually get it which is dave D- you know dave's a, a very well-regarded author also and his novels in the frank bear series of which there are four like best-selling crime thrillers but he wrote two novels before that both of which were published and the first one's called wormwood and it's about hollywood then and the premise is that hollywood has all decided that their underground clubs should have absinthe and real absinthe and uh it, it was written out of your experience as being an assistant in hollywood and i've had assistants i've given it to some hollywood assistants and they're all like it's still the most accurate book ever written about <laughs> what it's like to be an assistant awesome. at an agency in hollywood That's and great. and is it, i don't know it's is it hard to find the book now i i think it's out of print but it's probably horrible sure. somewhere yeah. you can I find mean, it's, it's worth around, finding yeah. wormwood uh by david that levine great. that sounds great Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I never get to talk about that book, and I, I think it's a, you know, it's like a modern day Day of the Locust. People should really read the book. It's a great. I mean, you were a very young man when you wrote it. I'm sure for you, reading it would be a painful experience. I won't reread it. <laughs> sure. Anyway, you know what? Getting back to the answer, um, mm-hmm. we so we did other things for like eight nine years after college, and then when I was in my late twenties, and Brian had just turned thirty, 
he I had a meltdown. You just he, I basically melted. He down. had a meltdown. An early midlifer, and he came to me at my bartending job. I was back in New York, and he was like, "I want to write a screenplay," and I'm like. You know, you want to write one together. Oh I, God. you know, I've read a million of these things. I know what they're supposed to look like. And we started to sort of throw down the bones of what became Rounders. Hmm. Let me, let's yeah. backtrack a little bit. Uh, and we may have talked about some of this stuff before, but I'm curious to hear, like, as David said, you had a great job. Yeah. Things were going well. Well, yeah. What happened was my, my first child was born and I, I realized that, um, I realized that I wanted to be the kind of father who would tell my kids, you can be anything, hmm. All right, which is my message on my podcast the moment. It's my message in the Vine series I did, and I write about this stuff a lot. Uh, I have this firm belief. Like, There's a lot of discussion in like the, at the intersection of psychology and economics about that it, there's not actually a great EV ex, uh, you know, expected value in chasing your dream. And I think that's because a lot of people leave out this idea that you have to do that with a tremendous amount of rigor and day-to-day persistence. Um, but I'd realized that I wanted to tell my kids that they could be anything. And that, and I, I was sitting in my office, yes, at a record company job that was pretty sweet. And I'd had a good amount of success. Like I'd signed Tracy Chapman and then D'Angelo, along with a guy named Gary Harris, I signed and other artists who became successful and weren't yet like David Gray and firefighting. And, um, but I was miserable. I had never been a smoker. I was 30 years old and I'd started smoking cigarettes, which you don't do at 30. No, you do that at 15. <laughs> And I was eating all the wrong foods. I was in my office late, miserable, smoking. And I, I finally said, fucker, you want to be a writer. You've been scared to do it your whole life. You write in the middle of the night. You have to, hmm. you, you, you have to do this thing. So I did. I went to Dave. We'd start talking about this guy, Worm, who we both knew. And how if we changed him around, we could make something out of him. And then, luckily, I walked into a poker club. And hmm. then I called Dave in the middle of the night. Funny. And I said, I, I know the world that Worm lives in. You said, I just lost all my money. Yeah, I said, I lost everything I have, and it was incredible (laughs) the way these guys talk. And there's a movie, then Dave came back with me like the next night, and then we just started, uh, we started going. But I do find these incredible low points are, like, what I I want to say about the, just jumping forward, Mm -hmm. about the moment when Runner Runner bombed, and the experience of making that movie was horrible, too, because we knew it was terrible. We knew the director couldn't get the thing in the can. It was just Mm -hmm. an awful experience and making that movie and then the countdown to knowing it was going to be a disaster and then getting fired off vinyl which was called rock and roll at the time Mm -hmm. before you know even after it'd been announced we hadn't gotten to write anything those kind of low points are incredibly clarifying to me and i i remember feeling each time like i have to take steps like i can't wallow in this and that the second time i started making those vines and I was talking to people about all this stuff, about how to move forward, but I was talking to myself just as much. You know, Dave and I both do morning pages every day, like Julia Cameron talks about. We both do TM. Dave exercises, I eat pizza. But uh, basically those things are, other than that, we both take long walks. And in doing that practice, in, in, I discovered that practice through David. When I went to him and I said, I have to do this thing. He gave me, I had given him Tony Robbins' book, Awaken the Giant Within, Dave, which really helped David. Uh, he gave me Julie Cameron's Artist Way. I started doing morning pages. And uh, I realized that, and then we sat down in this little tiny room to write the first script together. And Dave really taught me how to write a screenplay. Like, this is what matters in a screenplay. This is the stuff I've learned from reading them. Uh, luckily, I had an affinity for it. And I, I was a writer, even though I had been uh, unable to do it and blocked but this practice that I put into place all those years ago, 
it really, when you have a practice like that, that somehow forces you to start Mm -hmm. the working each day, it's an incredible protective shield against whatever else happens in the world. So this external thing happens and you feel crushed for a short time or for a longer time. Or an internal thing happens. Yeah, somehow you get crushed. But if you have these things in place, I learned and largely learned from the way David did it because he would write no matter what. He was, if if uh, he'd had a terrible breakup, he was writing the next morning. If he had a some asshole at the bar didn't tip, he still was writing the next morning. Like no matter what happened, he was disciplined and would shut his stuff off and and write. And then for having to figure out a practice of my own was incredibly was and remains liberating and freeing because even in those disappointments. When the rest of the day, I could I could wallow and feel like it's hopeless. For those couple hours, when I'm doing the thing, I'm able to do the thing because I've set myself up in this rhythm of meditation, morning pages, a walk. That means the next thing I do is write, hmm. no matter what. Yeah, that routine is so important. I want to ask you a real practical question. I mean, at this point, you guys are writing, you're producing, you're writing multiple things, I would imagine. Uh, in addition to having lives and families and friends, how do you make that time? Is it the routine? Is that what keeps it keeps it going? Yeah, I mean, we just show up in the morning on the early side, and you know, it's a different animal now that the show is going because there's there's other people. We have a writers' right. room, but you you know, we talk out these outlines together. We write. We write more scenes and more stuff separately now because we've been doing this for a long time, but but we still talk through the stuff together, and it, it gets down onto cards or whatever kind of scribbled notes right. or some kind of rough beat sheet when we're together in a room, and then we trade off on who's going to sort of take it to the next level of polish, mm-hmm. and then we when it's an episode that we're writing, we, we divvy up the scenes, and it's weird because when we put those things together when each of us have written our scenes we put them together into a draft it really just weirdly seamlessly fits together to the point where people who really know us well can't tell who wrote what yeah you'll think that the pro wrestling reference comes from me but dave will have done it to entertain me Mm -hmm. and or i'll throw it you know i'm throwing an odd reference to some hemingway but like we will throw shit back and forth just to make look like the whole time we're trying to make the other guy laugh yes. or smile. That's the best thing of writing with a partner, right? Is yeah, you're writing for that other person all the time. You know who your audience is mm-hmm. immediately, and and it is true that we, uh, when we're writing a, something of ours, you cannot. If we showed you the scenes, you just wouldn't know who wrote what. And that's been that's the great. case for a long time. Again, we're like the dumber version of Kahneman and Tversky. <laughs> You know, where they say that you couldn't tell when their stuff would come together. They couldn't remember who wrote what. That's, that's You can't us. remember as you're doing it. Who's A lot of the time you can't. No, he wrote, Mike, you should have played the Kings. My favorite line in Rounders. But other than that. That got no laughs in the theater. None. It doesn't matter. Best line in the, the movie. the handsome young movie stars were covered with blood after having gotten beaten up. So. It doesn't matter. It's the hardest I've laughed still in the time we've working together. But other than that one line that Dave absolutely wrote, it's all, by the time we're done with it. We've rewritten each other. Also, I could write a line that's something I heard him say three sure. years ago. It's all one big yeah. Yeah, mush yeah. of a thing. Yeah, I think a lot of people who don't write with partners who don't know partnerships don't realize that you don't own anything. It, it becomes the group effort, you know. Um, how Have you seen the partnership evolve? Have you seen the style evolve other than the sort of the practical efficiencies that you currently have? 
Yeah, like, I mean, the compression. When you, when you guys were writing rounders, what was the ball and like what we learned about the thing you said and we did about like when we've shot. Once you've shot one movie, it all changes. Sure. Well, that's when you certainly get much more of an understanding of like what's going to, in the end, matter. And you're not right 100% of the time, but the more stuff you make, the more you can sort of tell. And then the more the more stuff that would have stayed in, you can pare away because mm-hmm. now you know that it's going. But it's, it's somehow the, the efficiency that you mentioned is emblematic of the new style you know, or the progression mm-hmm. of whatever the style of the partnership is. You know, in the old days when we would have literally sat there and w- one guy would watch the other guy, watch the screen while the other guy was typing. Mm-hmm. Now yeah. we don't do that. And people who do that make me insane. <laughs> that was in the beginning. It was like the, the whole thing happened so slowly in a way. Yeah. Um, well, you're finding your way, right? And you yeah. have the story that you want to. Were you guys precious about that story in discovering it together? About rounders, yeah. I wouldn't say not precious in in the way we where where them. guys were you know where you talking about two partners each defending. It. Sure, no. It it was precious to us as That's a story. I mean, we were yeah. completely inspired by it. We we went out every night to the poker clubs for like a year, and we were playing cards and learning oh learning how to be good card players. Well, you're being. I mean, I was a degenerate. I had become. He had a gambling problem. I, I had a problem. I was working on a project. He had a problem. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but we were in the same place. You. <laughs> um, you know, while we were playing, we knew that we were trying to serve this bigger idea. Um, we weren't going to be sitting there five years later mm-hmm. without the script being written. There was no way because we we made sure that no matter how late we stayed out doing that, we were going to show up at like eight in the morning or ten or whatever right, time yeah. it was to do the writing. Part. No, I mean we had this clear. It was more the. T- I will say the. St- I don't. The tone is what we were very protective of. I, I go back to tone because that's really everything, right? What makes Diner, if I think about the movies that mattered to us so much, if I'm talking about She's Gotta Have It or Diner or Raising Arizona or Stripes or uh, The Godfather or Goodfellas, I mean, which were all the things that were in the hopper before we wrote, I mean, it's it's about the point of view and the tone. Mm-hmm. And so the point of view might be a more understandable way to talk about it. But the point of view of the movie from the beginning was super crucial to us, even just from the moment of those first words. And then we were protective of this idea, like I was a degenerate, the work ethic, the routine. I remember Dave saying to me, if we're going to do this, it's every day. We don't miss a day. We, we show up at eight in the morning. And we, we wrote that from eight to ten. And then I had to go off to my job, and he had to go hmm. probably sleep after the night of bartending. But it was every day, and it was like a commitment to not ever letting the other guy down. Mm-hmm. And I think th- that and this idea that we wanted to write a movie for people like us, like the way Diner was for us, right, because Stripes leads to Diner, the way Diner was for us, we just wanted this movie to be. And so the fact that it has all these years later, I still have, I mean, all the time, people coming up to me quoting lines from it is it feels great i still know who those two dudes were sitting in the room writing it and i know they're pretty similar to the guy sitting here now you're older we're just old (laughs) (laughs) uh let me follow up on something you mentioned earlier which was when when you when you first came to dave and said let's write this screenplay uh or let's tell this story whatever it was and you said David really showed, told you, here's what goes into screenplay. Here's how you do it. Do you remember what some of that stuff was? I mean, I'm sure it's stuff that's sort of automatic now. 
I do. I mean, yeah, it, you know, some of it is the 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 sort of um, vibe and authority that you bring to the descriptive mm-hmm. stuff that yeah, I remember. What is that for you guys? What is it you know, because obviously that's not the part that's filmed, but like that, when somebody's reading it for the first time, that's the thing. Yeah. That's how you can control their mood and how they feel about it. And I remember, you know, all the people that we named, like Quentin and Scott Rosenberg, when you read their things. And, you know, I didn't know Tony Gilroy's work then, but, you know, when you read something of his now, there's just this snap to it and this authority. And you're like, oh, this guy is going to be able to reveal, like, some mysteries about this topic to me <laughs> in a cool way. Yeah. And so it was just trying to create this ambiance on the page. and then, And then obviously, like... The lines, the dialogue had to be, you know, even though not everybody in the world walks around just spouting off colorful, snappy rejoinders, we wanted to sort of find a a pushed reality where it seemed like these people were. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to yeah. craft it. I was going to say the other things I don't want to, like Westerns were huge to us and I left those out. Mm-hmm. But Butch and Sundance and Silverado were mm-hmm. very big. And like the ones that are not poppy. Uh, a lot, of, so we'd watched millions of westerns and would quote them and talk about them, and but particularly Silverado and Butch and Sundance for the way that the people related to one another. Yeah. Those and we quote both. We quote Silverado in the movie, and um, we really we homage, it's an homage. We didn't steal the line; it's <laughs> right. an homage. But th- that movie, so that the dialogue stuff came. That part of it, I under like. Um, mm-hmm. Luckily, I can't. So I'm saying I had an affinity for the dialogue. I could do that somehow from a life of memorizing movies, I guess, and going back yeah. and forth. I understood that. But the biggest thing I think you taught me right at the beginning was that there has to be a plot engine. Because in the beginning, I could have just written seven pages of clever guys talking to each right. other. And I remember you being like, we have to make sure that we're the whole time every scene is telling the story. And so then we would, I understood that. And then it was like, okay, we have to be telling this story. We can't, Diner works, first of all, it's an outlier, but there still is this thing, there's this wedding. They're going to have this wedding. Eddie might fuck it up. And Billy got a, um, Billy got a girl pregnant. Mm-hmm. And how's that going to resolve? There are these real plot things. And so there's tremendous subtext. Even when those guys are talking about the roast beef sandwich, there's an incredible subtext that's going on. That's, a, in that case, about getting old, but also about this story that's pulling them mm-hmm. forward. These people are going to be separated. And you are aware of that as you're watching. And that kind of thing was the stuff that we were talking about Mm -hmm. how do you guys i mean i would imagine even now you have to fight that instinct to write seven pages of you know funny smart guys talking well now we just have so many more hours to put that into that we don't allow any scene to you know we're not we're not gonna write a seven page tv scene yeah also that's the thing i mean i think you like the editing like once you've been in the editing room that urge Hmm. I don't understand I say, we, people we, who've made stuff and still want to do yeah, that. Yeah, we, we think much more editorially now. Yeah. And, you know, before you've been through the entire experience, you can't really do that to a certain degree. But, you know, now we just recognize where the scene's going to start and where it's going to end much more cleanly. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, and then still you get into the editing room and go, well, we don't need that first half a page. Yeah, you know? uh, yeah, 100%. Oh, I'm sorry. I just remembered literally I left out probably the single biggest influence on me as a dialogue writer, which is David Mamet, because mm-hmm. his stuff also, I remember seeing Speed the Plow as a, with a girlfriend in college and then reading everything. And you'd read and watched all of it, too. And we'd read that Mamet quote, start the scene as late as you can mm-hmm. and end it as soon as you Well, can. that's a great example of, you know, people don't walk around in the world really talking like that, but you want to be in a world where they do. And that's what we try to create. Yeah. Is that... 
difficult to get across on the page to other people? Is it difficult to convey? And, and you know, we talked a little about, well, for, you know, but, going back to the idea of writing it, we, that's what we do. I mean, that it's yeah. much easier to have it on the page than to do it in a room. We can do it in a room, but then it just evaporates. Yeah. And then three months later, when you turn the thing in, they oh, forgot what you said. And, and, you know, they're, they were expecting something can you, else. Can you make your point? Here, I'm going to say something, then you make your point. <laughs> what I'm going to say is, because, no, I want, Dave, I was set it up by saying that, like, we've sold everything we've ever tried to pitch, but one thing over 20 years. We've sold every single pitch. One one project we couldn't sell, and it was impossible to sell. It was about the IRS. And, uh, but we've sold every other thing we've tried to pitch for film or television. And they rarely, a few, Runner Runner sadly was a pitch that got made, but they sadly get, rarely do pitches happen for us. And you have a whole theory about why, which I, I think is important for people to understand. About the one, yeah, the, the sort of the, the ghost in the machine thing that happens. You mean the, the disconnect that happens between pitching and when you turn and in? And then also when they say the one helpful idea. <laughs> well, okay. So this meeting. Yeah. yeah, this is cynical. You know, even when a pitch meeting is going as well as it possibly can, even when they're not being critical, but they want to be helpful, they're, they're inspired, they have an idea, mm-hmm. they, they give you an idea, it seems benign or even additive, you, you bake it into the thing, then... Um, it goes through a torturous development process and in the end doesn't get made. And when the smoke clears, if you do the autopsy, you'll ultimately get back to the fact that it was their idea that poisoned the entire thing and killed it on a systemic level right from the beginning. And that's not because, like, they're always bad or something. Mm-hmm. It's just it's an outside thing sure. that just shouldn't have been there. So we were determined not to have that experience on billions yeah, where it's hard when you create when you are creating insular worlds and that's the thing if you tie if you look at the Coen brothers and mamet and early barry levinson and even harold ramus like there's an insularity there's a language of it, of its own uh and silverado certainly has that we love that shit we always have I've told the story in other places, but I'll tell it here, which is that the rounder script was passed on by every agency. They all said that the, I mean, they said a lot of different things. You know, it's overwritten, it's underwritten. I still don't know what overwritten means. <laughs> I sort of understand underwritten. But basically the dialogue, you know, it starts with the three lines, three stacks of high society. You know, the dialogue that gets quoted to us every day now was the very thing that made agencies scared of it and made people say it's not a script that's going to get made. Also, the day we finished it, this sounds apocryphal, but you could go look it up. The day we finished it, there was an announcement in Variety that Mamet and Pacino were making a sequel to the Cincinnati no, a remake, Kid. A I remake think. of the Cincinnati Kid. And that Mamet had written a script. And I remember us looking at each other like, well, we're dead, you know. But We thought that, like, the whole 15 months we'd put in, sure. we could have just ripped the script up because there they were going to go and make Those it. were our guys, and they were going to do <laughs> this thing. And our secret in our minds was that Rounders was a sequel to the Cincinnati Kid because Rounders starts... <laughs> Rounder starts where that movie ends, right? It starts with the young guy getting crushed by the old master. So it's like, what if McQueen, what happened to McQueen the next day is where Rounder starts. And which is not something we've said very often, but it is true. Uh, And we thought we were dead for all those reasons. But like what we learned right away was that, yes, that kind of insularity, that kind of tricked up language. Mm hmm. And yet, when you're writing it, you have to be really careful not to be self-indulgent, which is what you were talking about. You have to be really careful not that you're not just doing it for yourself, but you are actually creating the world that Mm -hmm. you think you are. But if you get past the gatekeepers and if you keep being vigilant, you can. People want it. 
The gatekeepers are scared of it. They don't know how to sell it. But as long as you remember, all their no is about is what they, what they think they can sell based on the past six months. Right. Based on what happened yesterday at lunch. They actually have no fucking idea. It's up to you to show them the path. Mm-hmm. But you can't change your work to try to adapt to what they think they can sell. Yeah. Or we can't. Maybe some people can. No, I think that's we don't important. know how to do that. And that comes up a lot on this podcast. That You, know, you, can't, you can't chase a trend. You can't write what you think is going to sell. You have to write the thing that is you. But So my question is, how do you get past the gatekeepers? What was the... Well, it's tricky, you what know, when the these trick? when the buyers give you these ideas or ask you to put in something like, you know, right. it you can't say no the whole time, you know, you might think that you should, but like those kind of people, nobody wants to work with that guy, you know, you have to find a way to somehow exist. You got to be vigilant, but you have to seem like you're not a lunatic. But and a lot of it is seeming like being. It, it, I always say I think one thing that's been really easy for the two of us is that we are like white men and we're going into rooms largely with powerful white men who there's just a dial, a way that we know how to talk about Mm. a football game that allows people to think, oh, they, they must have the answers. And it's, I think, much harder for a person of color, for a woman, you know, to get certain things to have, to get a certain kind of trust if the material mm-hmm. isn't right there, that I think we just have a shorthand where we're able to access uh, this kind of shorthand. I'm even saying in the beginning, now it's different, right, because we have this big track record, but I'm even talking about er- early on, though Rounders itself didn't have... David met a 24-year-old manager who'd never sold anything or sold one TV movie. He read the script and he understood it. Hmm. He said, I know I can sell this thing. He got it to an assistant named who at the time, named Tracy Falco, who was an assistant to Ted Demi. Tracy then has gone on to a lot of other success. <clears throat> Tracy, there were three scripts that CA was trying to sell that were poker scripts. Wow. Ted Demi had all of them on his desk. Tracy said, you have to read this one. She and Joel Stillerman, who now runs AMC, and was Teddy's partner, she got Joel to read it. He agreed. She got Teddy to read it. Teddy agreed. Teddy sent it to Harvey. Teddy was one of those people who could really move mountains. He gave it to Harvey Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein read it over a weekend on Monday, offered us an option. I was on an airplane. Levine said, no, we want spec money. Even though he had, you had nothing. I don't know how you had the balls <laughs> to do, do that? that. Well, I just. We had nothing. I mean, everyone had passed. I knew that the script worked, and I just thought, you know, if we let if we let this thing be optioned, it's undervaluing it and it'll just go into a heap and they have to really pay. So they have to make the investment. I don't know. It was just a moment. It was one of those moments. I was on an airplane and I didn't, I landed somewhere and called in and Dave's like, I did this thing. And I was like, you what? Yeah. And well, the lawyer just said, when I said it to the lawyer, he just said, really? All right, I'll take it to him. And he just thought, wow, my client's an imbecile. And then he came back and he said, he said, well, he said, how much do you want? And I said the numbers, the upfront money and the back end. And he goes, okay. And <laughs> he came back and he goes, uh, I got it. But I it will tell crazy. this one piece of the story that I think is something that if you're listening to this show, you have to understand that we were nobody. We had no track record. Did you have no an career. the script? No. Mm-mm. We, we so never, all the agents passed. And then when Harvey bought it, sure. 
the same agents all called us. I wrote about this. I don't want to tell the story. I wrote it in length at my blog, which is mm-hmm. at Uh I've written a couple. The most common question is how to get an agent. So I wrote two pieces, like how to get an agent, part one and part two. I'm always good with titles. And this <laughs> was, uh, and so you can read that whole story. But this is the part. Because when you ask how do you get past it. So they were going to put a director on the movie that we didn't like. Hmm. We didn't think it was, we had a meeting. And the director, it was we just clear. Felt like the sensibility wasn't mm-hmm. right. And sure. we thought he'd fire us. Yeah. We kind of thought he'd fire us, remember? Mm-hmm. That we could tell he was giving us that kind of like... And so the writer's powerless is what you always hear. Mm-hmm. And we happened to be out in L.A. And at this time, we had just signed. So all the agencies were, who had passed were chasing us. Circled back. Right. We signed. And we were talking to the producers. We weren't producers on Rounders. And they were all talking about this one director. And then we knew this director would be bad. And maybe this director fell off, then there would be no movie. Because, you know, they, Miramax at that time, they, look, they, they move quickly. Matt wasn't attached to the movie yet. Though the idea of Matt Damon was, oh, yeah, Matt was. They, we, they had attached Matt. Matt had made Goodwill Hunting. It hadn't come out yet. They said, we want this guy, Matt Damon. They showed us 13 minutes of Goodwill Hunting. We loved it. And we said, we read the script and loved it. I remember we walked out and you were like, that kid's going to be a huge star. <laughs> And uh, we were in L.A. And we well, I remember talking that, to the agent and I know. we said, you know, we don't feel good about this director. And they said, well, who do you want? Remember, we had heard that one piece, though. We had heard that John Dahl was going to direct. They wanted to hire John Dahl on a different movie at Miramax, that they liked John Dahl. Sure. And then, yeah, then we realized that agent said, who would you want? And we said, John Dahl. And they said they represented him, the agency. And we said, we will stay in L.A. until you can get us a meeting with John Dahl. And they were like, you're not the producers on the movie. You can't. This is the thing writers tell themselves they can't. They're like, you can't do that. And we said, no, no, we are doing it. You just signed us and told us all this stuff. Deliver John Dahl to us. We'll do the rest. (laughs) So they sent John the script. He came and met with us like two days later at a hotel lobby, right? Mm -hmm. He gave us the great director. We're very close with John. We've worked on a lot of stuff together. That first thing he's like, I'd shoot it line. as is. Yeah. <laughs> I really like the script. I'd shoot it as is. Which, folks, then, when they say that to you, you know, be careful. Get your, get your pencil out because you're going to be working for the next three <laughs> if months. If you're lucky, it's yeah. you. And it wasn't. Yeah. So we sat with John. He said, I want to do this with you guys. We then called the producers and said, we found the director. It's John Dahl. They said, how could you have... But they were had cool. Have you even had a conversation nope. with the producers nope. about replacing this? Oh, I think they, they said a they list. Also, the producers they, didn't like the other director either, but the studio uh, did. No, the producers did give us like a list of people the studio was interested in, okay. like 10 people, and John was on it. All right. So but this we, other guy was already Yeah, they wanted – he was yeah. loosely attached. Okay. He was, he was, he'd was had meetings. Work. There was we'd, – we'd met with him. The producer met with him, and Matt gotcha. had – they were showing Matt the guy's movie. Okay. But we said, we found John Dahl. He's going to direct the movie. They were like, what do you mean? How is that possible? But then Teddy was like, okay, I love it. I don't care. That's great. He called Harvey. (coughs) Harvey was like, I will let John decide between these two movies. And John took our movie that Monday. It was Friday, and that Monday John took the movie. And and because we had then brought John in, Mm -hmm. although we weren't producers on the movie, we were locked into the picture. Like, we were on set every day. We were a part of it. John trusted us because he knew. We also, he trusted poker him. wasn't really like a well-known mm-hmm. 
thing back then. Like everybody knows how to play poker now and they're all really good. But back then it was like a mysterious game. They didn't know, yeah, um, hold them so well. So we were the resident experts. So we That's made ourselves kind of indispensable. Point. They would have to have hired somebody to be the, the onset advisors <laughs> if it wasn't for but us. Also somehow you and I have always felt like the writer has far more agency than personal agency than like the town mm-hmm. tends to tell you. We always, right? I mean, we just always felt somehow like, well, it's, we can influence this. Mm-hmm. We're, we're the authorities on the material. We're not assholes about that either. Like, the better idea always wins. If the director has a great idea, we're thrilled. Like, working with Soderbergh's the greatest thing of our lives. We learned everything from him about how to take our... And that's the other biggest, I'd say, influence. Like, when you ask what changed. Mm-hmm. Three movies with Steven where we were mm-hmm. either writers or produ- he produced something we directed or we wrote a movie for him. That changed everything for yeah. us creatively and professionally, like understanding best practices. That was life changing. But uh, we just somehow have felt like there's a way that you can carry yourself and that affords you a level of authority that you don't technically have. Mm-hmm. In Hollywood, if you say you're a producer, you're a producer, but people don't understand that. You, you can just say, I'm a producer and insist upon it if you have material. Mm-hmm. That's which is very a potent, powerful thing to be able to do. I, I think so, and I think it's something, as you say, that you know, writers often get underestimated in this town, um, and and I think less so in TV, although they're they're getting closer and closer together. Um, but yeah, you can have ownership of your material because you own your material, even if someone else owns your material, you're you're the custodian, right? Uh, yeah. It's an interesting thing. Uh, it's an interesting piece of selling yourself or getting this job. Yeah, there are times, I mean, you can't... Yeah, you know, it's like you can get roughed up and fired in various situations, but you shouldn't go into new situations as if that's already happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, you try to reset and point. go walking in yeah. like, you know, <laughs> you're on equal footing but with everybody else. I mean, let's If look. it happens down the road, okay, but, but don't, you don't want to go in beaten before you start. But let's talk about, I mean, it's so easy to fall into that, right? Let's talk about these low points. You know, you guys, again, you've been lucky because you're talented. You get stuff done, you get stuff made, and and they've mostly been well-regarded. But there have been low points, too. How do you not say, what am I supposed to do? How do I I go back in? How do I write the next day? Well, that was, for some reason, that always seemed like the answer, Hmm. you know? It was because it's the one thing you can control. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, okay, right, we're right. in this spot. We got to write ourselves out of this spot. We got to come up with something undeniable that these people will forget whatever happened the last time that didn't go so well. And they're going to want this thing. And, you know, you're rewriting your own history there, like right in that moment. And we just find something that inspires us and, and we go back at it. I mean, that's where the partnership is probably mm-hmm. really helpful because it's you know, it's, it would have to be two of us sort of crumbling at the same moment. <laughs> you know, the chances are that one of us can buoy the other guy up mm-hmm. at any given moment. And, you know, after a while you just decide, I'm just going to keep hanging around and I'm going to stick until, until we went out. We keep punching and we also keep doing So like, even when the, a couple of things, one, we rarely have taken a, you, Eric, and you were talking about the hard hat thing too. Mm-hmm. This kind of things come up a lot on your pod, like jobs yeah. people take comes up a lot. Yeah, you guys haven't done a lot of that. Writing we, jobs or outside yeah, jobs? Writing yeah, writing. Yeah, Heiser talks about hard hat jobs. Like when you put the hard hat on, someone's giving you the specs and you got to go do the job. 
Yeah, well, there have been we moments stopped, like but that. But we made a choice to stop at a we, certain point. We, that that particular we tried to, to cut that out because what we realized is we're only, you know, we only work at the best of our ability on our own stuff. We get much more like sort of everybody else when we're working on somebody sure. else's material. I would say, I would just amend it by saying like, when Oceans 13 came up, that wasn't, we were able to make, feel like that was our own thing. Like mm-hmm. we, because Soderbergh was so inspiring, th- there've been a few of those where it's yeah. like someone else's We well, don't feel like there's a ceiling. You, they you free have, you to try sure. things you would have never tried. It's about yet. the feeling of ownership yeah. over mm-hmm. it is what it really, I think, boils down to. But yeah, on a, yeah, some of the studio jobs have a lot of parameters and once you're trying to operate within them, it has to be like a really rare piece of casting mm-hmm. that it's going to work out perfectly. Sure. I mean, it, casting us. They've ca- yeah. Yeah. us being yeah. cast, not the, the cast writer, as the writers. For yeah. The job, yeah. Yeah. That we're exactly right for the gig. So we well, started like, you know, taking the ones where we thought we could really runaway win. jury came to us and they were having a really hard time getting it made. And it was this one step deal. And we just like saw the way that this thing should, should mm-hmm. be to turn into a movie. And, and that was a successful one. That yeah, worked. That, that sure. was one where like somehow the, the chemistry clicked in and it was like, we were able to do, you know, our good work and, and it was what they were looking for, and it turned into a pretty good movie. But it's less interesting unless it's unless there's a real a, you know a director we want because we've now as people who've directed movies that have been you know had a lot of critical regard and produced movies and to go in that position and look there have been a lot of times because we made a bunch of indie movies where we've endured really rough financial patches. I would say there's trade offs all the time. I don't want to appear to be Pollyanna, you have to take those hard hat jobs or you have to be willing to be buffeted by financial ramifications. You have to be willing to like get fucked and feel scared. But we've been willing to Yeah, I mean I don't I don't look down on that at all. I mean that's legit. And and you know taking them taking those jobs, yeah. And you know, in a way it's like a lottery ticket kind of thing. Like it's just a question of can you do an amazing job on somebody else's Mm -hmm. dime? Occasionally that'll happen. Um but but it just started to become unsatisfying to us. We'll still meet on the right if they're Mm -hmm. like we will still go do it if it's something that feels really like I remember getting the call about Ocean 13 I would have done anything to get that gig and work with those people you know that just seemed amazing to me uh, like and the like perfect, say, you, yeah. a perfect use of us too. <laughs> like it makes total sense to have us write about those dudes. Like yeah. that's exactly right, and so it all made sense. Um, yeah. I remember watching Ocean's Eleven and being and love. I think Ted Griffin's a genius screenwriter, and yeah. I remember watching that movie and just being like sick with sick envy. with envy that <laughs> yeah. they didn't have told Ted and Steve. Like they didn't call us for that made me crazy. So when we got the Ocean's Thirteen call. It was like the easiest. Like please, whatever we have to fucking do, we've been preparing to write this our whole lives. But but I would say, here's the other thing. We constantly take stuff just because it seems like it's what we want to do. Mm-hmm. So, like, while Runner Runner was, I remember, you know, it was September that Runner Runner, we got fired off that thing and Runner Runner bombed. But three weeks later, our 30 for 30 mm-hmm. came out, which, you know, Rolling Stone called the fifth best 30 for 30 ever <clears throat> about Jimmy Connors. And we directed that movie. And that is a money-losing proposition, <laughs> Like the amount of time it takes, the time and energy. But we're sitting on an airplane, and Bill Simmons and I were uh, emailing one another, and he was like, "You guys haven't done a thirty for 30. And I said, "We've wanted to." And he goes, "What do you want to do?" And I looked at Levine. I go, "Jimmy Connors." And he goes, "Yeah, Connors at the Open." (laughs) And we said, "Connors at the Open." We met with ESPN the next day, and they told us what it was. And we spent a year of our lives making that documentary. 
So that's like talk about a sunk cost in many ways, or or like uh, there's no utility to that from a financially at all. Right. But man, we got we, to hit tennis balls at Jimmy Connors, though. Yeah, that we, was pretty cool. We got to throw ourselves into that, <laughs> yeah. though, into solving those. So when everything was going bad, you know, Sandy Morris, the legendary Susan E. Morris, the editor, cut all Woody's movies and worked on the first season of Billions with us. You know, Sandy was cutting them thing, and she was in the we'd cleared out a room in our office so that's where sandy was and we would be able to go in and lose ourselves in editing that movie which was another form of like protecting yourself against all this bad stuff that's coming out and then the movie was really you know it's a an hour so whatever the show or movie was excellent people responded to it as though it was excellent and so and hollywood weirdly which i didn't count on hollywood everyone watched it and so even though there was all this bad shit going on we had this thing three weeks later that was on the air constantly that everybody loved. <clears throat> That's that, I, we didn't plan it. It wasn't the opposite of calculated. It was right. like, right. it was like, hey, this seems like it would be fun to do. But it ended up being a great saving grace to have like, oh, by the way, we directed it. Not only did we, whatever, we directed this right. documentary. And it just was able to shift the focus. Sure. That was lucky, but it was also like, but it was living by our thing. principles yeah. of like doing the thing that we love. Exactly. Which is exactly. what Billy, I mean, that goes back to why we wrote Billions on spec are you so billions is is ongoing and where are you guys right now is is the season done are you finished shooting the second season we're not done with the post yet okay so in the next four to six we'll be done mixing and editing and you have other projects going on i mean you're writing features and things where we are can you even do that (laughs) we can't no we're not (laughs) Well, TV is because the new season starts. Although it hasn't been officially greenlit yet, we're uh, like if it happens, and sure, it, everyone's certainly talking like it's happening. Uh, we start writing again in April. Mm-hmm. We're in February, basically. <laughs> so we, it's very difficult. To, like if a friend of ours, a director, asked us to come work for a few weeks on something, right. we would, could do it. That's different from taking something from scratch, though. Yeah, that'd be hard to do. <laughs> we love the show, and it that's great. It's, it's every, very consuming. I yeah. Mean, you know, to have a couple of extra weeks to start thinking about a third season is great for us. Sure. It's what we want to concentrate on. So I mean, we, I mean, these actors are fucking amazing. Like, I mean, for us, you get to yeah. write for Damian Lewis and Maggie Siff, Paul Giamatti and Malin Ackerman. And we have a great, this new character this year, um, played by Asia Kate Dillon, a character called Taylor Mason, who people are going to be talking about. And to, to have this cast and, get to write for them and get to work with these directors. I mean, this year we got to work with John Singleton and Reed Murano and Karin Kusama, Karin Kusama and Ryan Fleck and Anna Bowden. And, you know, uh, to get to work with these directors uh, on a thing that's completely ours. Mm-hmm. We're happy to put all of our time and energy yeah. into it. What an opportunity. To- that, yeah. That was kind of my question. Like, are you getting everything you need as storytellers, yeah. well, as it's funny, like, um, creatives from it, this show. And a past agent of ours used to say to us before we were in TV, you know, I'd really love to see you guys make the auteur play in TV. And we'd look we at each other like, <laughs> what the hell is he talking about? Like, the, we're going to go in and think about ourselves making the auteur play? We're like, thanks, I mean, Sergeant Hulk. Uh, <laughs> you know, basically. <laughs> Can you pitch yourself that way? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, we'd it like just, to make the auteur it play. seemed unbelievable, but, you know, the amount that you can control your destiny yeah. is really... Are you calling us auteurs? No. It sounded like it. <laughs> I was making fun that. of the idea of the auteur <laughs> no, I don't play. know. It sounded like you were calling us auteurs. I think, actually, the auteur play's over, right? Didn't that end in the... 
at, at a certain stage in the golden age of TV, I think the latest incarnation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. It's over. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> but you really still get to do a lot Absolutely. with no French words attached. Are there? To it. Yes. Right. Yeah. No pretension. Okay. Yeah. Um, are there aspects to making TV, making movies that are as satisfying to each of you as writing the movie or, or TV show? The filmmaking part, as opposed to yeah, the writing I mean, part, especially like I say in TV, you're suddenly doing a, you're wearing a lot more hats, right? And you've also directed, you've produced other people's stuff, you've produced documentaries. Yeah, I mean, the, the great thing about making the show is that it's parts of all of it, mm-hmm. and it's just, I mean, it's a really, really fun thing to do. I mean, it's brutal. The hours are ridiculous, and the amount it takes out of you, but it's it's really satisfying. those aha moments though that happen in writing happened in the editing room too mm-hmm. and I think we both love I lo- I mean I, I I could live in the editing I love yeah. editing I always have I've heard that a lot and people say that yeah, yeah. I, I mean, just, it feels like writing to people it, it is the greatest moment when you have those and it's moments. not cold or hot or early <laughs> it's very comfortable <laughs> I mean editing yeah you, and you can really reinvent that's another Soderbergh lesson really for us I mean in the editing room you can reinvent the whole thing and we're just completely willing to do that. You know, the other thing is friends. You brought, you asked about like what what you do to protect the vagaries of the business. I mean, one other thing is when you're going through these experiences, finding a way to keep relationships. So even during Runner Runner, the producer Jen Kaloran hired us in and Brad Weston, who ran the studio, like the week after the movie came out and was shitty. They hired us to do another movie because we'd conducted ourselves as professionals as we were. We threw in. We tried our best. We weren't assholes. And we, you know, DeLuca, another movie of ours that didn't do well was Knockaround Guys. And DeLuca got his next job. And Mike is one of our closest friends in the business. But he got his next job and, like, immediately gave us a movie there. And part of that is because in success or in failure, treat people as you'd like, as simple as it is. Just don't be a petulant child. Treat people the way you'd like to be treated. Be honest with them. Like, uh, do your best work. Be rigorous. And then out of that, you build relationships. And those relationships are the other thing that can bail you out mm-hmm. when then you've written the next thing. And then, you know, you track it. Like, we know the development execs who in success call us. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of them. There's five or six. There are five or six people who, like, win billions, gets a great <laughs> review in EW or in Variety. That guy is emailing. Or that woman is writing us. Like, that right. woman who was terrible to us when we were cold sends five emails in a row to us each week billions is on trying to remind us that we're friends. As opposed to the people like DeLuca, who in our worst moment would call us and say, hey, guys, I watched the movie. Here's what I think. Here's what's going on. Sorry it was rough. Can I take you to lunch? Can we?" At the moment, no one else was. Yeah. So that when DeLuca calls us during Billions, it's like, oh, that's genuine. Yeah. That I guy's been there the whole time. Yeah. And I, I, don't you think that's another piece of it? Yeah. I mean, the people that'll call when you're at a down moment, though, it's a very short list in the yeah. business. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> so small. <laughs> But, but it does but you know, that, And that, writer no, friends. That makes a that huge count. difference. And other writer friends. Like, yeah. I would say, our writer friends have been invaluable to us. Soderbergh, most of all, mm-hmm. above anybody else, he's 
if you any you ever get the opportunity to be in his orbit, it's it's worth it because he just you you know if you throw in with him and you're there to at the four in the morning when he wants to get together and write something, which we always are because it's you'll learn something and it's incredibly fun. But you know he's still like the first person if we've written something and we want notes, Stephen, and we're, if we shot something and we want notes on the cut, like he will drop everything and and That's immediately amazing. do it. But also like tons of writer friends who. Mm-hmm. Like Craig Mazin was invaluable to us in, uh, and if you listen to his podcast, he may seem caustic. At <laughs> Not Craig. And in, yeah, and in, in person, he is. Amazingly <laughs> Super caustic. caustic. So fucking caustic. Oh my God, even it's more caustic. Withering, witheringly caustic. But it's, uh, man, is it entertaining. <laughs> but, and don't spread the word that he is a sweet guy. The sweetest. Under, oh, underneath it, well. he, he will <laughs> help gives you the and best gives notes. the best yeah. notes of anybody I'm in sure. the business. Uh, sure. And um, But over and over, we have a, we have a group of writer friends we can count on yeah elwood reed or john hamburg or a million of them who are there and who we're there for them yeah. at, community at is so time. important uh, you know because because it can be so difficult and it can be so lonely trying to make it in this business that you know find the people who like you for you and who you can you can maybe then have a creative relationship with who will well. read your script yeah. and give you fair notes Absolutely. and like tell you when you're right and tell you when you're wrong that's crucial we used that on billions when we finished that script i mean we gave it to steven and to elwood and to craig and yeah. got notes from before we showed it to the you mm-hmm. know before we sent it out to an agent yeah. we had went through that process and i'm sure it wasn't Easy either. Like you're sending it to the people who are going to give you the real notes. Uh, no, it was <laughs> terrible. No, I mean Elwood and Craig whipped us into. They gave us amazingly yeah. difficult and useful notes. Um, we do need to wrap up. Um, Billions, the new season, February nineteenth. Yep, on Showtime. Um, people can watch it. I think. Uh, do they put it on Hulu also? Does that happen eventually? I think the first. No, Showtime the first anytime. Oh, maybe okay. it, but Showtime sure, anytime yeah. and right. oh, over the top. I think is their thing. The, the, now it's just called Showtime anytime. Oh, it's not OTT. That's the no Showtime. Yeah. That's the okay. internal. It's something term. called over the top. No, it's just the internal term. <laughs> oh, okay. That's for cord cutters out there. <laughs> but um, also the hack is you know you can get Showtime anytime for a month oh, and cancel true. it for free. Yeah. So you do can it. watch season one or wait do, till season two. Do it halfway up. through, and then, and then you get the whole. Of them. And then you get <laughs> the whole thing. Thanks for doing your podcast. You know, um, I, I, I have this podcast at the moment, um, which you can find at iTunes. Which people? Slash the moment. If people like this, they should listen to it. Like, there are very few interviewers that I really enjoy and who are asking the questions that I want to ask, and you do that. So well, I, thanks. I recommend that completely to. Thank you. But I'm, this is what I was going to say. I mean, your podcast is an invaluable resource. Oh, I think you know your podcast and Craig and John's podcast, and um, I hope mine are try to do this thing of demystifying this process that seems almost impossible. Yeah. Also, on my pod, I interviewed Dave, so and I really did shut up and let him talk. So if, if I've talked too much here, go to that podcast, and you can hear Levine uh, sort of undiluted. Nice. And Dave, you can come back anytime here. Oh, thank you. Good. Let's book You that. are welcome. Uh, thank you guys so much. Congrats on the show. Thank you. Let's talk Thanks, again. man. Great. Now leaving Nerdist.com.